Hello, and welcome to the Storied Arcs podcast, where we do deep dive looks into indie and creator-owned comics. And today we have another very special exclusive interview with Will Morris. You may know him from his writing of the book Gospel. If not, you might know him from his art in the work Gospel. You might know him from his color in the work Gospel or his lettering in the work Gospel. Basically, if you're in the American market, Gospel is the primary thing you will have seen him in. And he did this one-man project, five issues through Image Comics. We've already discussed it last week. And without any further ado, we're going to ask all of the questions that we came up last week to Will directly. And we're very excited to hear from him. Without any further ado, here is Will Morris. Well, let's get started, Will. And first off, we always ask uh, all of our guests, just how did you get your start into comics? Uh, Through reading? uh, Or did you... Were you a writer and then you saw this medium and decided to jump over there? Yeah, absolutely through reading. Although it wasn't easy where I grew up because there was no comic shop (laughs) as such. So I just had to kind of scrabble together what bits and pieces I could. I think it was, um, I'm trying to remember. I mean, obviously there's kind of uh, Asterix and Tintin, uh, kind of like, I guess, the cornerstones of anyone's comic reading of my age. but then I think it was coming across Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man was, was some oh, of the sure. first comics okay. I've read. Uh, and that, I guess, frenetic energy and athleticism was kind of what got me fired up as a, as a very young person. Yeah, so you're collecting a lot of those in like trade paperback then, probably. Not back in those days, I guess. Um, so you were I, able to I get was, a hold of single issues where you I are. was, yeah, I was getting okay. single issues. But that was like, I would have to travel... Um, well, it might not sound too exotic a distance to you, but like <laughs> 40 miles to go to a comic shop. Maybe that's normal in the States. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I'm sure there are parts of the States, you know, we live in a medium sized city mm-hmm. and I think we've, we've probably have 15 comic shops within oh, wow. a, a five mile radius. Um, so, uh, yeah, but uh, we're a little spoiled, but you know, I went, I was in Copenhagen a couple years ago. And I thought, I'm here for a couple of weeks. It'd be really cool if I could pick up some single issue comics nowhere in the entire city. Yeah, 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 as far yeah. as I could tell, nowhere in the country. I was like, if it were going to be in the country, it would be in Copenhagen. Um, yeah, fair. I mean, I think you can, you know, in, in Paris, places like that, you can you can definitely get hold of them. But obviously, they've got a completely different culture of comics over there. Um, yes. Which, which isn't really fueled by single issues, I guess, more of the albums and um Hey, um, I'm no expert, so I better not go too far down that. Right? Line. Yeah, no. I, and I, I did think, you know, there's. I'm sure in Denmark they probably also factor the sustainability of printing all the paper for single issue mm-hmm. comics, and uh, so. But you know, with the digital world, that's the great thing. Is um, we'll, we'll get to uh, gospel in just a moment, but uh, that artwork alone on the front cover was a masterstroke because uh, I picked it up because of that. Mm-hmm. And I went into a shop and I had a friend in the car with me and I said, oh, hang on, I just need to run in here and pick up my my pool list. And she went in and was just kind of nosing around. And out of the whole wall of comics, she picked up gospel number one because mm-hmm. she just loved the art. Um, so there's something really powerful about that. And then I know people who have picked it up digitally, uh, you know, they were buying something else. And it said, you know, image comic readers who liked this book also read mm-hmm. this and. 
they looked at the cover and they thought, oh, that looks nice. Yeah, uh, most so. definitely. I think that's probably the best decision I made throughout the entire process because um, it was Ver who created the covers. And I don't know if you've come across Ver's work before. Only in the letter in the back of your issue. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Ver d- has done a fantastic comic called Wolf and Daughter, which is out through a, um, an independent publisher here in the UK called Quindry Press. And she's working on, oh, sorry, they, they're working on a new um, graphic novel. And um, so I'm super excited about that because it's going to be phenomenal. Um, yeah, Ver's work is extraordinary. Um, yeah. yeah. So, because I, I did, you know, I've, I've kind of always considered myself like a sequential artist rather than like a, I didn't start kind of doing pinups or like sure. cover designs or what have you. I started wanting to tell stories with panels. Um, so, um, so yeah, so I think it's, it's such a skill in and of itself telling a story and catching the eye on what's, a, as you say, like a super crowded shelf. Um, and, and so I was like, I gave it a, a wee bit of a go, but I just thought, uh, I, I should, I should see if, could step in there because i i'd seen their work at edinburgh comic-con uh yeah. way back and it was one of those ones probably similar to how you're describing whereas i was walking past their table and a kind of rubbernecking just when i saw kind of the yep. work on show yep. and just how stunning it was so i thought i'd chance my arm and see if they'd be interested in doing the colors now in the back of the first issue you had what i think was basically you had done a mock-up of what you thought the cover would be and then you gave that to Ver and they, or was this Ver's prototype that yeah, is in the back yeah. here? Yeah, so Ver, Ver put together three, three different, um, three different options, I think, for that first cover. And it's an extremely they were all difficult choice. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it was brutal. But I think, I think I made the right one. Um, and it, and it was Ver's preference as well. And, um, and, and, but then like that, that one was so stunning. It, going forward they didn't bother putting together three options they're just like this is the one and we were, we were like yeah that's that's perfect yeah um, they, the, on the rooftop the with the burning church is is very <laughs> very tempting but yes since the story opens with the wild boar chase uh it, you know it it's a perfect segue into the story and your expectations are met immediately and then as soon as you think you know what kind of story you're in you get a jarring shift to page 17. Mm-hmm. But uh, again, uh, so two questions from my co-host, Alex, who was not able to make it oh. today. And he was asking about your background. He's He opined that you're pretty well known in the British comic scene. Very few appearances in the American comic scene. Hopefully that, you know, is the trajectory that's changing. But he had noticed, and this is a classic Alex question. He said, how did you get involved with the Vertigo CMYK anthology, uh, which I think he said was about 10 years ago. You yeah, uh, were the artist for Night of the Black Stamp uh, number four. Man, that's a deep pull. Um, so <laughs> that's that's Alex. why Alex is on the podcast. I just like things. I read things and I like things and I want to talk about them. And he has the encyclopedic back knowledge. <laughs> Great days. Um, yeah, well, that was... Uh, because I'd done a story in 2000 AD with David Bailey, who was the writer on that story, because David then went on to do a miniseries with Vertigo. Um, and I think it was one of those, you know, comics is so great for the people that are willing to say, 
oh, I've, I've seen this person's work. Um, why, why not give them a shot to an editor or whoever else? And, and so many opportunities come through just people being generous and kind rather than, you know, you kind of hitting those kind of submissions at mailboxes or, or whatever else. So he had shown the work to one of the editors there and, and they were keen to do that story. And, um, yeah, I mean, that wasn't long before, I guess, a lot of change happened at Vertigo. So it would have been nice to kind of yeah. um, take that relationship further. <laughs> but obviously, um, it wasn't to be. Well, Karen Berger now has her own imprint at Dark Horse, uh, mm. which is where we see a lot of the old Vertigo titles getting ported over. Yeah, uh, like right. Error by G. Willow Wilson is now being reprinted uh, under the Burger Books imprint. So. Uh, once they start making more original content at Burger, maybe you can say, "Hey, I almost had the traction yes. going at Vertigo." Uh, <laughs> yeah, what's we can if we can hit resume on that, that would be great. Um, okay, the second question Alex had was, he said, "Similarly, you did a single issue for Time Before Time, which was pretty yes. current." Um, and he said, "You know, what's it like coming into a series like that for just a one-shot appearance?" I think number twenty-four. Yeah. That was a brilliant experience, to be honest, because I'd, I'd come hot off making gospel um, when that opportunity came up. Um, I was just very fortunate that um, a friend was friends with Declan Shelby and a Declan just got in touch to say, you know, would you be interested to kind of work on anything? And um, and then a kind of a period of time elapsed and then eventually this opportunity came up and and. I was just thrilled because honestly, you know, working as the writer and artist <laughs> on a series and working over quite an extended period of time where you're kind of juggling other responsibilities, it's 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 incredibly rewarding, but also very hard work and <laughs> quite grueling. And it's really nice to just draw. Because this is what I kind of got into what I always really aspired to do with comics was was to just do the drawing part of things and, and really the storytelling um, is something that came on later as I just started to understand what I wanted to draw and that in some instances that was going to mean me writing the story in order to draw those things. So, um, so yeah, but it's, it's a really great experience working, you know, and just kind of having more restrictions and having that script and responding to that and seeing what you can do with that script and how you can stretch the storytelling and, and uh, really kind of, I guess, bring through the themes in just, you know, the visual aspect. Yeah. Well, and, and that one, you know, the character design is already done. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel there. Yeah, You're able yeah. to play with the pieces that are already on the board and, and push the story forward a little bit. So just out of curiosity, I was trying to do the math on this because I know each writer works at a different pace. Some of them can crank out a script a day and some of them, each script takes a month. But I just saw a tweet from uh, Jacob Phillips, the mm-hmm. the artist, and he was celebrating that he had a really good day because he inked three pages that day. And I, I thought, I, oh no, I saw that tweet. And, oh, and did I you? what he said was penciled and inked. Penciled and, and inked, yes. my heart stop <laughs> okay just... and i was like okay well now i'm thinking like okay most comic issues now about 24 pages that's eight work days which is functionally two weeks of work for uh just the the pencil and inking uh of, of one book he didn't write that book i assume it's the um the enfield massacre book he's working on mm-hmm. right now um 
And I thought, okay, well, geez, if a script takes a week and penciling and inking takes a week and coloring took a week or two, that is a full month of nine to five work for a single issue. In light of that, how long did gospel take you? Longer. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, because... and I'm sure, I'm sure you weren't dedicated nine to five for a full month on each issue. Yeah, either. I mean, I, I also I work part time as a teacher. Um, so I'm kind of balancing a couple of things whilst I'm kind of making comics. Um, now do you teach art or history? Art. Uh, so yeah, it's a, a a comic art course here in the UK. Um, and yeah, I mean, honestly, yeah, so you, you're doing the maths there, but to me, three pages of pencils and three pages of inks in a day is the kind of pace i can't even begin to aspire to well i I, his father's that way too yeah uh, yeah, which uh, you know sean phillips uh like ed brubaker has said the reason he writes so much is because sean phillips keeps demanding work Mm -hmm. you know he comes back and says hey do you have anything else for me to draw and ed's like well i haven't quite written that yet um so (laughs) he's got he's got a starving artist waiting for a script uh great motivation um yeah absolutely and when I, it's a single vision like you you're your own starving artist waiting for the script yeah absolutely yeah and, and the scripting did take a while because i was relatively new to writing i'd 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 written things i'd written my first graphic novel which was which was published about 10 years ago was the silver darlings and that was um like a uh I was about to say an adventure, but not really. I mean, it's like a story setting the herring fishing industry in in Scotland, and um, and that was really my first venture into longer form writing. And so um, after that, I was really conscious that I wanted to make sure I wanted to make sure that it had a structure and that it could kind of pull readers through the story with gospel. So I did do a bit more investing in kind of understanding story structure and reading some of those kind of seminal books that kind of. I guess are the foundation stones for a lot of storytelling. Um, so yeah, so that's completely off track from your original question. Which was, <laughs> it it t- takes a long time. It takes me. I think you know I can probably do a page of pencils and inks in a day. Three pages is is kind of well beyond uh, my capabilities at the moment. I need to employ some um, assistants or something that can do the backgrounds like a, a mangaka, um, but. Yeah, it was um so so yeah, probably talking about a page a day and then I was also balancing other freelance projects. So it's probably like maybe four or five years actually, the full process of completing it whilst I was doing other my other work and also balancing other kind of freelance projects as well. Yeah, that's that's essentially what I would have guessed, which mm-hmm. means did you have the entire thing in hand when you went to image or did you have a couple finished issues and the full script and said, here's when I can deliver? Yeah, no, not, not even that, to be honest. It was um, <laughs> it was one of those kind of wonderful, unexpected experiences. I was at Thought Bubble Festival when I met Eric Stevenson, who was doing portfolio reviews for Image. And I just went with my portfolio. So um, and it, it was the end of the day. He looked <laughs> pretty exhausted. Um and he was flicking through it and he saw some of the stuff for the, Sil- for the Silver Darlings, which is very different in style to gospel. It's kind of, um, you know, ink wash, a much rawer line. And I think he found it quite refreshing because he'd seen a lot of kind of superhero 
based content that day. And so to see something that was kind of quite distinctive um, and different was enough to get him interested. And then he flipped over and there were just just two pages, two test pages to be the very earliest idea of gospel um, before I even knew what the overarching story was. And he was just interested in in the feel of those pages and the, the way they were working. So he said, well, I like this. Send me a synopsis and we'll see where we go from there. And so then I had to kind of just furiously put together a synopsis in the hope of kind of getting a series of image. And um, it miraculously worked out. So it was good. Yeah. Well, now that we're into to gospel, um, I've got I've got three or four questions here about it. Mm. And if if I ask something that you as the artist, you as the writer would rather have the reader continue to debate, feel free to opt out of answering sure. any questions. Um, but we get on uh, page 17 by my count. Uh, we hear one of the first things Mr. Fisher says is that every storyteller has their purpose. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd, I'd love to talk about what Mr. Fisher's purpose is in storytelling and Pitt's purpose in storytelling. Uh, but I have to first turn it feels negligent if i don't ask the meta question of what's your purpose in writing gospel yeah that's that's very good taking it um taking it further than the layers that i've got gone into in the story um yeah that is that is an interesting question i mean what was there a character you started with or is there a particular commentary or you'd always wanted to do a period piece um, I think it was a couple of things coming together at once. One, and that's that's how any story I ever have comes together. It's kind of maybe having um, an experience or reading up on something or visiting somewhere and just like um, a place or a setting or an era kind of getting lodged in my head and then combining that with something I'm feeling or experiencing in kind of like the modern, modern times. Um, so with gospel, it was just on like a family holiday, like many, many moons ago in Devon, which is in the southwest of England, if you've not been there. Um, there was this church, which um, is honestly the most brutal weather-beaten church you're ever likely to see on this this kind of craggy rock. And, you know, to think of people having to go up there every Sunday, I mean, I, I feel for those folk because um, it would have been brutal. But um, there was a legend attached to it of uh, of the devil and St. Michael, like, in combat um, over the fate okay. of this church. And and I just liked it. And I liked it because, I I mean, it was such a stark-looking church. It, like, And, you know, I, I really love drawing those pieces with that kind of church atop the this kind of craggy um rock face so it was partly that it was partly then kind of doing because i was living in that area at the time doing a lot of reading around kind of local folk tales and you know you kind of read them and they're they're fascinating stories but sometimes without the cultural context it's hard to understand what was the purpose of this story was it just to entertain did it have like a moral message did it have something you know that would help the community kind of bind together and, and learn, you know, through that kind of passed down wisdom. Um, and some of them are just so obscure and weird that it's really, you'd really kind of grapple with like, what on earth was the purpose of this story? And so I had those two things knocking around in my head, just kind of whirring around. 
and at the same time you know when i was kind of writing it like instagram or when i was kind of just mulling it over instagram was you know becoming huge uh and um social media more broadly and this kind of pressure to present almost like an idealized version of who you are mm, uh, yeah uh and 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 people kind of kind of putting up this facade i guess in some respects because no one's life is perfect or idealized so combining those aspects which might sound super disparate is kind of how the story emerged because you have you have matilde who's trying to kind of establish herself as like the hero of of legend to be the person that's celebrated by communities and and to be that person that's presenting an idealized version of themselves um and they're doing so by slightly uh racketeering is the word that came to mind for me yeah <laughs> yeah nefarious means so it's kind of you know you have that view of where she wants to be and the idealized view but then i also wanted to tell a story where i took this very old story of this battle over a church and tried to give it some of that contemporary context something that had some meaning to to people now which would be about kind of you know maybe kind of empathy and kind of leaning into friendships and finding belonging that way is more important than the admiration of of, of strangers you know yeah no that's great and to be to be fair I, that sounded you said it you know it was a tricky question or whatever and i think uh, the story that i heard was that the whole Harry Potter series came about because JK was riding on a train through Scotland and thought, mm -hmm. hmm, what if this was a setting? Like, what if a boy was riding to a school here and everything else, which is the most incidental part of the story, yeah, but that was what, you know, that's all you need is a little seed to touch the soil. And uh, sometimes things start to bloom. Um, totally. Well, I was just reading um, like one of the big inspirations for the book was, I don't know if you can see it up here. I can see it. I can't read it. It's um, Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind. Um, okay. The Heo Miyazaki manga. Oh, yeah. Um, and um, I was just reading an interview with him today, actually, on, on the process of creating this, which sounds like it was an excruciating experience over 10 plus years. Um, but it's really interesting because he was talking about how when he started writing it, he didn't set out with, uh, this is how it ends. You know, these are the themes I want to explore. And he grew and evolved over the, that 10 year period of writing and, and had kind of like a, a love hate relationship with the book and, and the story evolved as, as he kind of wrote it. And I think that is, you know, it's good to have like a sense of where it ends and maybe what you want to say. But I think it's lovely to be able to let the characters evolve and develop over the process of, of making that story. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. So. The next thing that we debated, which you kind of hinted at already, is in our discussion, which we already recorded so that we couldn't sound really enlightened and discuss <laughs> it after speaking to the author. Yeah. Uh, so that will come out, um, I think, September 7th, and this will be the 14th. Cool. And uh, in our discussion, we were debating whether there's you know, a particular meaning uh, in that historical setting, which obviously there is because it came from you know the plaque outside the church. Or whether it happened to be a pivotal moment in mass communication, which is a central theme of the book, which is, yes. you know, once the printing press has reached the dissemination of information, good and bad information goes out rapidly, which is very similar to the age we're in now. Uh, it sounded like 
you were talking about it more on the personal level, what each person chooses to do with that in terms of how they depict themselves online, whether they're creating this uh, mythic version of themselves. Um, so didn't know if it was meant to have two layers there, one on the kind of the mass level of like, you know, as soon as it hits England, people factionalize. There's a papist and the reformers. And uh, wow, if we could funnel everything into two groups these days, that would be a monumental <laughs> yeah, achievement. Uh, but, uh, you know, as soon as anyone gets online access, it's bam, new faction. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, no, so it's, it's just, that's a really good point. Um, and, and it's definitely part of it as well. And um, uh, I think another reason why I felt that that era was particularly relevant is because probably as as it has ever been, like um, it felt like a period where technology was advancing at a rate that like human structures weren't ready to deal with. Yeah. Um, which feels again very similar to where we are now and whether it's, you know, whether it is the effect of social media on like people's interactions and connection or whether it is, um, AI or whatever else, you know, it, it feels like things are kind of hurtling at a pace that, that, you know, society's not quite ready for. And I think that was very much the case with the advent of the printing press, as you say, and, and particularly for the priest character in the book who, you know, is used to having almost total control over hearts and minds as as the person who is the conduit between um, the people and God and their religion, which, you know, at that time would have been everything yeah. in, as part of their da daily lives and rituals. And, and so to be in a position where, you know, suddenly um, you're no longer that network, to some extent, you're no longer, um, you know, that person that's interpreting and influencing and having control over a group because they've got ready access and, and can kind of get closer to their kind of faith or beliefs through through their kind of own reading is um, was a really interesting point. Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that in that day prior to uh, the English Reformation, there would be essentially one Bible per town, it would be chained to the pulpit and it would be in Latin. <laughs> and I mean, in, in English literacy wasn't, um, uh, wasn't extremely high, but Latin literacy no. was basically priesthood only. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think, you know, um, the, uh, translation of prayer books and Bibles probably gave a boost to that literacy as well uh in time sure. um but yeah not everyone was on board for that yeah uh I, I i i had heard this quote somewhere but um i think it was martin luther said at one point that uh he was referring to his own translating the bible into german and he said that it would open a floodgate of iniquity and if if it does do that uh then so be it uh because it's <laughs> yeah. better to give people direct information and sort it out basically than it is to um than it is to keep everything tied to one figure who's corruptible mm -hmm. uh, so we rather trust the corrupt nature of the masses rather than you know a corrupt uh center central figure of authority so uh, uh you know kind of a fascinating decision and that's you know that's uh i think telling it in this context in the historical setting gives you kind of the 2020 hindsight 
Whereas if you were telling a modern story about how, you know, in, in America 50 years ago, there were three sources of news and it's three over the air channels. And now there are thousands of news websites and a lot of cable news options. And so now people can choose the news and information yeah. that suits them rather than going through one of the three sanctioned voices. Um, and we don't actually know what the end result of that is going to be yet. We're, we're starting to see some troubling signs of what it might be. Uh, but when we look at the, you know, the 16th century reformation, we're like, we have a pretty good idea how that ended. Uh, <laughs> That's very true. I mean, we're still in a sense in the unfolding of that, but uh, we have a much clearer picture of what's it going to look like a hundred years after these massive changes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just a brilliant choice. And speaking of the context, uh, I think it was notable and had to be intentional that your two protagonists were a black male teenager or young adult and a white female teenager or young adult who don't frequently make the headlines in this period of time. (laughs) And so um, it's difficult for me not to interpret that as the way that we mythologize stories and tell history is often very selective with race and gender. Yes. Can you speak to that at all? Is that, was that part of the thinking? Was that all the thinking? Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, I think, and, um, you know, at the, at the end of the book, there's kind of, um, it's, it's, I mean, it's only really one panel, but it's kind of revealed how, it, in a sense, Matilde got her wish. She, you know, she gave rise to a story that has passed down through the generations, but actually it's attributed to St. Michael rather than being attributed yes. to to her and yeah so absolutely that's the case i mean um more than anything i i, I just wanted to write a, a a story with the characters i wanted to write and i wanted that to be reflective of the world i live in not the world that like some people would have you believe that history uh sure. you know historic populations lived in but it, i think it did mean also doing a lot of um research just to make sure that what you know what the story i was telling was plausible even if it's a work of historical fi- uh, fantasy which it absolutely is that that it it you know that it was plausible and um you, you know that that there's kind of a good basis there for kind of these characters and kind of so that meant doing a lot of um reading just on kind of the roles of black people in Tudor England which was um maybe enlightened is not the right word, but was kind of a much more egalitarian, not egalitarian, that's a terrible word as well, but, um, you know, was was kind of, um, you know, people people of, of different races occupied almost every any role you could imagine, um, which, you know, might not have been the case even in the centuries that followed the Tudor period. Um, Interesting. And, um, yeah, and the same again, you know, obviously I was actually really just fortuitous it was after the gospel got published but i just read a book called uh femina i think it is which tries to or femina you might get the pronunciation wrong um but that is looking at, at the early middle ages through the lenses of the women that shaped history just as a way of trying to just kind of reframe kind of how we um perceive the past and the influential people within it yeah, interesting. Yeah, I just pulled up that book. It's a Harper Collins book. Yeah, it's really um, great, actually. Really good read. 
And, and to, I will warn our listeners, it does not have pictures. That is a lot of what we cover on the podcast. It does have pictures, yeah, okay. it's not- <laughs> just, but just not sequential art. So okay, I yes, okay, yeah, good distinction. With that. Um, <laughs> well, you you stumbled a little bit there on the genre. You almost called it historical fiction, and then you called it historical fantasy. And I actually wanted to ask what the genre is. I think the book is left open to some interpretation. When you grab the front cover, you think historical fantasy. This is going to be, you know, kings and castles mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, mutant sized boars. And then you get these <laughs> demonic things and you get teased a magical hammer. And almost all of that is stripped away because we realize, like, oh, the boar was a normal sized boar. You know, they're trying to spin a story here. Uh, the hammer was just a regular hammer. Uh, it was just the hammer used for that purpose. You know, the demons are just the priest dressed up. However, she does talk to a ghost, uh, which. Yeah, what does she? Uh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the fact that the whole genre now comes down to, well, was she really talking to a ghost or not? Um, and so I, I like, I think that's very clever um, that, that I think one person could read it and say, oh, it kind of it demythologized it took the varnish off and we see that it is actually just historical fiction and someone else could read it and still say no 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 there are fantasy elements here so did you uh, is it your intention to leave it open to guessing or is there something fantasy intrinsic to the plot yeah no i did i did want people to to be able to interpret it how they will cuz cuz i think that's the very nature of stories you know is that yes. like one person will read um, certain events differently to another person. Um, so, for instance, with the kind of the meeting the ghost, I think, um, you know, maybe I'm too subtle with it or I kind of didn't layer <laughs> enough panels, but like... Um, That'd be uh, issue four. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it might be start of issue five, maybe. Okay. Where she kind of like lays her head down to have a rest. So... Ah, uh, yes. Um, so, you know, yep. you could... But just, no, her just head for a single is panel. Down. Yep. And and so it and then she kind of readopts the same position kind of later on. So it's kind of up to you to decide, you know, did she have an interaction with with a spirit or or is it a dream? Um and you know, they're kind of like I guess I've got a point of view, but I I'd be happy for anyone to interpret it however they like. And yeah, suppose, well, uh, and that's what I was saying very early in the podcast. I said, you know, some authors don't like talking about their point of view because they don't want to make an official point of view, uh, you know, because it feels like you're taking something away from the reader. Mm. Uh, so I, I want to leave you that freedom, but I will absorb as much as you can. And I have thick enough skin as a reader that uh, and I'm pigheaded enough that I will disagree with you about perfect. your own work if I feel <laughs> really strongly about an interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Let's get to blows. Um, uh, yeah, no. So, I mean, I would definitely say it's historical fantasy because it's like, but maybe not, you know, high fantasy. Sure. Kind of more like low fantasy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's kind of grounded in, in most ways. But of course, um, you know, there's kind of, there's kind of, wild action and explosions and uh, all the kinds of things that you know might not happen on a day-to-day basis in a in a 16th century town in england sure so, 
So yeah, um, it's definitely fantasy in terms of the action and adventure, I guess, within there. If um, nothing else, I think probably the blue hair in the 16th century. Yeah, I mean, I did actually think about that because because this is where I was thinking. It actually, I didn't bump on it the first time through. Like, I didn't. It didn't even register to me as odd. And then I noticed that oh, like when we have her her flashback sequence to her birth, and that same her hair color is the tint that kind of mm-hmm. washes over the page, which I thought was. It's brilliant storytelling when you don't have to clue people in as to what they're seeing and they pick it up through little uh, subversive things like that. Yeah, that's cool. Um, thank you. Well, I, I think I was thinking um, the, the kind of person she is, she wants to live long in people's memories. So she wants to create yeah. a brand almost. So I guess the way I envisioned it, I, I don't know how this is obviously where I probably should have done more research, but like, that she would use um, dyes or lichen or something like that yeah. to kind of give her hair the tint so that anyone that's retelling a story about her would, of course, first mention this kind of shock of green-blue hair as like yes. yeah. a calling card for her. So even though I don't kind of really go on to explain that in the book, other than for Pitt at the very end to say, oh, so you're keeping keeping the hair, Um you know, it's kind of like this is this is about her trying to like pitch herself as this larger than life, m- like more more than you know, basically. Yeah, um, and I think know, that's yeah that becomes pretty evident for if you're paying attention as a reader, because mm-hmm. um, it it just fits with everything about her. Um, so here's an odd question, and I think mm-hmm. this is um probably the strangest question you're going to be asked. I'm, I'm excited. Who is the main character? Is it Mr. Oh. Fisher or is it Matilde? I I think it's unquestionably in my heart is Matilde. And okay. um, yeah, I because it would be strange if it were Mr. Fisher because he's not even in the second and fourth issue. <laughs> know, yeah. However, <laughs> the bad way to write a protagonist. <laughs> well, he is the one narrating. Uh, uh-huh. That's my understanding is everything yes. we're getting about uh, Matilde and Pitt is through Mr. Fisher's point of view and w- which, you know, that's like saying, uh, th- have you ever seen the, the Tim Burton movie, big fish? Do you know, th- it's funny you mentioned that because I remember, um, talking, talking to a friend about it before it even got started as a, as a proper book. And we came to this conclusion that it was, you know, how everyone like pitches a book as X meets X. Yes. Yeah. That it was like, Lord of the Rings meets Big Fish was yeah, that's exactly was, was the uh, was the pitch back in the day. The Lord of the Rings bit is a bit of a stretch, but um, you know, <laughs> I think it's just yeah. Uh, this does not strike me as Middle Earth. Um, <laughs> so wait, so have you seen the movie, or is that just something yes. somebody? Okay, yeah, yeah because yeah, I really enjoyed it actually. Uh, that that to me was the comparison where it's like, well, I mean, technically, you and McGregor is a you know unquestionably the main character he's playing a younger version of the old man who's telling these stories but the old man isn't actually the main character even though mm-hmm. the framing device is using him to tell the stories it's about you know the the young character and ultimately it's about his son and uh so there are all these different vantage points but the the person with the most screen time is Hugh mcgregor's character who yeah um is living in flashback and they're partially fantasized flashbacks because it communicates the true essence of what happened and, you know, 
uh, I, I love that his son became a journalist because he wants the facts only. Mm-hmm. And then he's, you know, he's sitting with his father at his deathbed. They're recounting the stories and he goes to the funeral and he realizes like, oh, these people were actually quite a bit more real than I realized. You know, the embellishing was not as extreme as I thought. He just knew how to spin a good story. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of thought, oh, that's what, you know, what, what Mr. Fisher's doing. So, okay. So Matilda's absolutely main character. And I agree with you. Um, so I have two more questions. Yeah, sure. The first, uh, my co-host stumped me in the middle of our episode talking about this, but we were, I don't know, three quarters of the way through. And he said, what do you think of the name of it? Uh, you know, why is it called gospel? And uh, I have a background in, in theology. He he doesn't have any background in theology. And so he expected me to have a better answer. And I said, duh, <laughs> duh, duh, I don't know. I said, you know, I, I just kind of accepted it. And, uh, you know, there's like the modern parlance of calling something gospel truth, which mm-hmm. would mean, I, I think people use that to mean literally true, like yes. word for word true. And I was like, well, I certainly don't think that's what it means. But I think it's maybe like a lowercase g, g as in it's like, this is how things are mythologized. This is how they evolve. And this is how stories convey meaning, you know, regardless of how precisely they describe the you know events perfect so anyway that was our wild speculation set us straight i i think i think you've done a pretty good job there mike to be honest um <laughs> yeah I, I i think um i suppose that i think that you're right gospel truth is is essentially kind of it came from um that sentiment um alongside obviously the fact that is kind of um, set around a, a period of sort of religious turmoil and, and kind of like um, the gospels being kind of cornerstones of of um, I guess the the old traditional faith. But I think, yeah, definitely it was it was that idea of the truth. What is the truth, and whose truth? And you know, can there ever be a gospel truth? As it, as it were, when it comes to telling stories, because, you know, as, as Mr. Fisher says, everyone's got their purpose and every storyteller, whether it is like, you know, whether it's just purely to entertain or whether they're trying to influence, um, the people that are listening, uh, in a certain way, you know, everyone's got a purpose in the stories they tell. So, um, you know, uh, and same with any any kind of news media outlet, the way in which sure. they will interpret the same events will, you know, have a very different um, spin, I suppose. Yeah. Well, and it, it's it, it's just fascinating to me uh, because it, it fits so well that I didn't think about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, you know, there is a religious setting to the story, but it is in no way a religious story. No, that was kind of an interesting one because I, I wanted to try and be sensitive there because um, it's, it's a tricky thing, right? I mean, obviously, it's been several centuries since the English Reformation. Um, so Some people aren't over people... it yet. So. <laughs> that's true. I mean, that's true. So, yeah. So, but, um, yeah, I mean, because I, I grew up in a Catholic background, um, so like not not that my 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 family well not that my sort of parents were like practicing as such sure. but 
I went to Catholic school and so you get surrounded with all the, yeah. the kind of the rituals, the the guilt complexes, the way of life, you know, and just like all, all of those things. And, um, and so what I hope is that because you know there's arguments in both directions there's there's never um you know there's never a clean answer to anything as complex as changing someone's entire way of life or belief system um and so i never wanted to or intended to kind of make a stance on whether one was right or wrong only that within any system there are people that can be corrupted by the power their position yeah affords them um well and the beautiful thing of your your two main young characters are on opposite sides of this debate yet they mm -hmm. are best friends mm -hmm. and it's like things like this do not have to drive schisms between you know neighbor and neighbor and family member yeah uh, it yeah, is only true. when we choose to elevate the importance of these things over our relationships uh that they become yeah and it's that's probably only because it's fresh in my mind, but that Miyazaki interview I was reading as well, um, he, he was describing how I think he, he had been kind of um, a real um, maybe Marxist or um, when he was kind of growing up and that his kind of political views had shifted away, not not away to the other side of the political spectrum, but to the point where he's not any longer kind of like assessing people on what's whether they're right or wrong only whether they're nice yeah. you know and right. you know whether it's someone that he would want to spend time with rather than someone that shares a, a specific viewpoint yeah so it's it, he changed the way he holds his view not necessarily the view he holds yeah and i think yeah, that's yeah, true, that's that's the real mark of maturity is that uh, -huh. uh you know regardless of your view how do you hold it how do you treat other people as a result of your view uh and people with different views um okay so i i hate to sprinkle more american pop culture references no but yeah i already got you with big fish <laughs> yes. and so i had this big fish thing alex and i were both puzzled uh by the final page of the book mm -hmm. where the caseworker looks around you see the boar's head you see the picture of the two kids you see the church you see the cards you see the hat you see the sculpture you see uh the hammer and you see the uh the hamlet the hamlet quote to then himself be true um and so you see all of this i took that as he's collected these relics of things that are the story is very important to him and he's filled his house with these things alex read it a completely different way he read this as the uh, the movie The Usual Suspects okay. uh, with Kaiser Soze, who the entire movie he's being interrogated. Spoiler alert for a movie from 1996. <laughs> um, he's been interrogated by the police this whole time, and he's spinning them this story. And as soon as he walks out, the detective looks around and realizes like, oh, he was just grabbing things in the room and telling spinning a story out of the things that he could see and piecing them together you know, and then walking free. And Alex thought, oh, this clever old guy was just telling her a long story to waste her time and was just looking around seeing a boar's head. So now I'm going to tell a story about a boar's head. And here's, you know, this hammer sitting in a bucket. So here's a mythical hammer. And I was like, oh, I really like that, but I don't think that's what it was going for. Uh, especially since she ends feeling very positive mm -hmm. about the whole exchange. 
but either way, it felt like the last page was meant to provide closure, but we both felt like, ooh, it actually twists the knife a little bit and has you thinking about the ending rather than giving you an, a nicely buttoned up ending. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about your intentions with the, the final page. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting to hear those two viewpoints. And I think I think I was always, you know, if I was if I was to kind of revisit the book, I think I think those kind of modern day sections are the area I'd probably try and find more time for in the story um, and to sort of flesh those out. And to, but I'm not I'm not at all disappointed if people have different ways of interpreting it and take different things away from that. And and so I guess my question is. Do you want to know what my intention was? I do. Yeah, I do. do? And, and okay. we can tell people to skip forward 90 seconds or, or whatever <laughs> okay, cool. if they don't want to hear it. Um, so my intention was was very much Alex's perspective. Wow. Okay. Um, so I okay, suppose so the-, the only thing that I found that supported that, by the way, is that it's technically an anachronism for her to have to then and self be true when she's born 13 years before Hamlet was written. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. I yeah. didn't know if that was intentional, but it's okay. I mean, that, that, that would be next level. I don't know. Yeah. I think that was just me freestyling. With well, that. you can take credit for <laughs> it. Now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I suppose the, the kind of the, the, the arc there is in the very first scene um, with, with features in the modern day, um, the, the um, social worker has kind of um, has visited because there's reports from kind of around the village or whatever else that that you know this this person is not living a, a decent life or whatever in their cottage or whatever, um, or that they need to go into assisted living or something along those lines. So she's trying to do an appraisal on that basis, right. and he's really elusive with facts because he thinks he can tell he can convince her better that he should stay in that house by telling this story rather than just giving her the facts that she's looking for to complete her form, which wouldn't paint a full picture of who this man is. So, um, and what he needs. So if on page, let me see if I can grab this. Uh, the pages are not numbered, which artistically I like for the purposes oh, of this podcast. It's not ideal, is it? It's not ideal because we yeah, uh, very much have a book club style. No, 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 it's better. I could, I can add numbers if I feel like it. Okay. So here we go. Um, so we've got this page. So it's, it's on the third page of the um, modern scene. At the very beginning. Yeah, the very beginning. Okay. So that'd be probably so, uh, page 17 is the first page of the modern thing. So that'd be page 19 or 20. Yeah. So she she says, have you considered whether someplace else might be more comfortable, a nice airy residential home, for instance? Mm-hmm. And he replies, oh, my, no. This place is my imagination, my soul. I'd be lost without it. And so then he is, as as Alex says, he's trying to convince her of how important this home is to him and that he shouldn't be moved to a residential home. Um, and so that's where he tells this tall tale, much like Big Fish. And then... Um, at the very end, it's only that she notices all of these artifacts that are pivotal in the telling of the story. And these are really just kind of accumulated detritus from his life, essentially. 
but that they kind of um she realizes that like this is his heart this is his soul this is kind of where he needs to be because this is kind of you know where he gets his his character and his inspiration and whatever else from so um i mean i hate to say it but alex alex got it on the head there yeah that's great by the way are there um are there changes from the single issue to the trade? Yeah, there is. Okay, I, I was like, I have the single issue open on my computer, and I'm holding the trade open, and I was like, wait, what? This is... <laughs> yeah. And I kept referring page. to it as the last page because I was in single issue. That's not the last. This is the second to last page now because the last page is now this big uh, splash yes. with the framed picture, which to me, moving that from a small panel to a full page is much more the Kaiser Sosa because it's like there's no way he's a photograph of these two kids in the story. These are yes. kids in the neighborhood that he's inserted into the story, you know, or something like that, or his granddaughter, something. Yeah, exactly, exactly that. Yeah, could 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 be any any relation. But yeah, I think that was a really interesting because I, I spoke to the editor Sebastian Gurner just like about okay, I've got this opportunity to make any small changes if I want to, just to kind of smooth things along. So there are a few subtle things that are tweaked. Between oh, the single issues and the trade paperback, so but that's just... the most significant one. Sure, and I think yeah. We both that's felt huge. that, um, as you say earlier on, you know, um, you know, I felt even though you know you have this framing device and he's very much the narrator, this is Matilda's story and it's Pitt's story, and and to finish on them and to make that much more significant, that photograph that this is clearly the two characters from the book. Um, from the story, even if they're not in a Tudor setting, um, that that helps that that kind of final scene resonate a bit harder and, and just finishes on the two main characters, which is always a good thing. Yeah. So you had to draw that whole extra page after this, yes. after you thought you were finished with the book. And <laughs> yeah, then it looks like, uh, let's, let's see, you got, uh, you added this Tudor England book as the, oh, yeah. what did I do? What did the I second add? one there. You move to thine own self be true up to the first row from the third row. Uh, so lots of little changes that I, I mean, I feel just flabbergasted that I missed that until I'm talking to you in real time. Yeah. Well, but I've never guess, had them both open at the same time before. You know, I did I my initial I read in single issue and then I read again in trade. And now I've been referencing single issue. Yeah, I guess I, I kind of, I almost assume they're going to be a different readership. Um, you know, um, it's probably fairly rare that people have both to hand. So, well, it's a, it's a sickness that's exclusive to this podcast. This. Yeah. Uh, we, Alex did this uh, for another book that we did earlier this summer, Outpost Zero. He found some discrepancy between the single issue and I was reading the compendium. And uh, it's always fascinating when that happens. I uh, This doesn't feel like I think the bad example of when that happens is like George Lucas constantly retweaking. Uh -huh. Four, five, and six, uh, and uh, you know, his, they brought me a George Lucas, right? And, and his uh, he never has a definitive version of it. Whereas this, this is a very logical change. It's a you know coherent storytelling change, and I think kind of tips the hand from ambiguity to a little more resolution. Mm -hmm. um, but with it not being you know Mister Fisher's book, it doesn't it doesn't fundamentally change anything. I mean, I think, you know, Matilda's story is still w exactly what it was. Uh, and her character arc and journey are the same. This just gives us a little more closure on the modern 
yeah leg of the story. So. And, it, and I think it's still, like I say, I think it's still open to interpretation. I mean, I welcome it. You know, people have got different points of view, please. And, you know. Yeah, I mean, as long as um, people are talking about your book, that yeah, means they're reading yeah. it, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, well, that was the last question we have. I told you it would take an hour and uh, we're right up against that. But the last thing we like to ask is, first of all, is there anything coming up soon that we should be on the lookout for? Uh, people, you know, definitely the host of this podcast, we do basically, once we've covered a book, we essentially have a, a pool list for that author. It's like everything mm. you have your name on now. Obviously, Alex can dig up anything you've ever touched. Uh, <laughs> so uh, just be careful there. And then finally, is there another way that people are to support you? You know, do you sell original art pages? Do you uh, have a, a Patreon or Kickstarter or anything like that? I mean, mostly just just follow, you know, if you like the art, if you like the storytelling, please do follow on um, Instagram where I'm Will H. Morris and um, whatever alias Twitter's going by today, uh, I'm <laughs> WH underscore Morris. Um so yeah, it'd be lovely to see folks there. And I do kind of share kind of more work in progress stuff. Um, other than that, I, I probably will get around to selling some original art, um, but I'll probably just do that through my website, which is whmorris.com at some point. I've just kind of not got that figured out just yet. Um, yeah, well, I've got a whole wall of original art. So I'm a, uh, I love collecting it. And as soon as it's for sale. Who have make... you got on there? Oh, um, well, so... Um, my my all-time favorite artist storyteller is Jeff Lemire. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I have a full watercolored page from Royal City over there. Uh, I've got a Matt Kent page here nice. from um, Mind Management. I've got some Jorge Jimenez uh, from Batman. Nice. I have a page from the book White, which was the sequel to Black. Uh, I have a Tyler Jenkins, Hiller Jenkins from the new book Hairball. Uh, I'm a big oh, cat. I'm a big cat person. It's their new horror book. Matt Kent has his now his own imprint at uh, Dark Horse now. And then one of our favorite series of all time is The Unwritten. Mm -hmm. uh, my my carrying Peter Gross. I have two pages of that that um, MK Perker did. I'm trying to get a hold of a Peter Gross one. He and I have an email thread going back and forth since February where he has encouraged me to nag him every week because <laughs> one of the, the page I want from the book, he hasn't finished yet. You know, the book came out. Interesting. Yeah. He said, like, he said, I had to send it off because there was a deadline. And then he had, uh, I think his daughter, like, finished it digitally. Uh, but the original print in his house, he wants to finish the inking before he sends it to me. And I'm like, oh, well, that's this, nice. at this point, <laughs> like, it's like, I don't know. It's like 12, 15 years later now. <laughs> I'm like, just give it to me in whatever form it is. Uh, you know, yeah. for it, ship it. Uh, so yeah, anyway, it'd be good to scrutinize, scrutinize that that artwork, like um, you know, kind of like the idealized version of that artwork versus. I know, yeah, well, and and uh, yeah, to, to me, it's like whatever you have. What he said, like he said, well, the lettering's not on. I'll add the lettering. I was like, what? You don't have to. Like, you didn't do the lettering for the book, so I don't know, you know, why you did the lettering. By the way, did you do the lettering in Gospel? Yes. Yeah, okay. I think I did pretty much everything in in there. Um, yeah. Well, uh, often these you know solo projects they still like jeff lemire will write the story you know tell the story draw it ink it color it and still have someone come in and finish the letters like the underwater yeah. welder or something but you know what? i think i think i think it, i i would have liked 
I'm really pleased with how the colours turned out. But initially, I'd intended to get a colourist, and I would have liked to have got a letter as well. I think just as the months wore on and the budget kind of <laughs> uh, contracted, just those sort of opportunities shrank a bit. So, um, so yeah, I wound up colouring it myself, which um, was hard work, but I'm really glad I did because I'm, I'm pleased with how it turned out. Yeah, well, and the, uh, the lettering looks great. I would never know that that wasn't someone who specialized mm-hmm. in lettering. And uh, yeah, my only complaint with the lettering was, you know, every once in a while, a letterer will like emphasize a word and make it bold. And I would have loved on that last page if you'd emphasize the word fresh Ooh. on teabag. Uh, since we saw his collection of heavily recycled teabags in the kitchen. Oh, yeah, you're right. And she was totally grossed out. And so she said, yeah, I'll be sure to check in soon. Please send me a fresh teabag. Uh, oh, damn, that's how yeah. I read okay. it anyway. Um, <laughs> Look, if there's ever a second printing, I'll, uh, I'll, it's I'll make really that not worth it. Um, <laughs> no, you can, you can have a credit, man. But, uh, uh, that, that is a good suggestion. <laughs> uh, I, well, yeah, I just I loved it because I I had a roommate in grad school that uh, had tea bags like Mr. Fisher because you know we were both absolutely impoverished. Uh, <laughs> but I was like, I don't care where I am in my life. I can afford new tea bags. Uh, so anyway, well, thank you so much for talking. We really appreciate it. We will have links to your website, your Instagram, and whatever the website Twitter happens to be at the time in our mm-hmm. show notes. So whether you're listening on Apple, Spotify, wherever, you can just click directly from the episode description, get there. And thank you again, Will, for chatting with us. Thank you, Mike. It was a real pleasure. Thank you.